So today, I'm going to do a, begin a brief series on biblical values. That might not sound very exciting, uh, but last week I was real hot and heavy on telling you guys it was important for us to go vote in accordance with these biblical values. But I think that even well-meaning Christians are in some form of disagreement over some of these issues. So I'm just going to take you to the scripture and I'm going to help you to understand a few things that I think are very important uh, because we're getting sidetracked, we're getting distracted, uh, we're getting confused, and uh, we need to get back to the basics. So I'm going to begin by relating to you what I do at uh, at a wedding. I've officiated quite a number of weddings. Many of the people in this church who are married and have kids now, I had the privilege of officiating their weddings. I'm looking all through the church. And I think in all of the weddings I've officiated here, I have made uh, the statement that I'm about to make to you because it's a succinct statement about marriage. So I I said that this uh, message today is uh, about biblical values. It's the first message, but we're going to focus on God's design for marriage and family. Listen to what, uh, what the statement is. Our creator designed marriage to be a covenant bond between one man and one woman for life. The man and the woman become one flesh, and what God joins together is not to be separated by any human being. God intentionally made two genders, each with specific gifts and purposes. The woman was created in part from the man's body, and every man is formed in a woman's body. Thus, men and women possess equal worth. God's plan has always been for marriage to be the basis for family. It is his will that children be reared by a mother and a father. Above all, marriage is holy. It is a symbol of the spiritual, mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church. The church is comprised of all people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as God and received the Holy Spirit into their hearts. This is all clearly taught in the Christian Bible. With this understanding, a marriage covenant must be entered into soberly and with significant forethought and commitment. Now, I didn't just come up with that. It is actually based on Scripture, but the statement and the order of the statement is based on the old um, Book of Common Prayer, uh, the the 17th century version of that uh, Anglican book that really forms the basis for marriage in English-speaking countries. And I could read that statement, and it would sound familiar to you from old movies that you have seen. But if you don't listen to me any further than you've already listened to me, I've just told you the truth, biblically speaking. Now, there's a a lot of different ideas today that are flying around concerning marriage. And many of those ideas would be in fundamental disagreement with what I just taught you or just told you. However, you and I need to understand that it is God's view that we need to keep in mind because marriage and family are God's idea. God designed human beings. He designed the human body. He designed it to do certain things, and sometimes we abuse it in a variety of ways. But your body is very specifically designed. So let's think about this coronavirus pandemic that we're facing right now. 
we're sitting around waiting uh, in this uh, time period until some sort of a, uh, a vaccine is developed. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how a vaccine works? So, how many of you have ever gotten a flu shot? Here's what happened. They injected into your body a version of that year's flu virus, but the virus has been disabled from replicating itself. You see, this is what happens with the virus. This is why viruses are just so downright evil, really. Um, and I'm sure that there are good purposes behind uh, some viruses. But what a virus does is it invades the cells of your body and then it uses the cell's ability to replicate itself to replicate the virus. So what happens is your body detects this virus and it sends antibodies to attack it and to kill it. Now, we live in a fallen world and there are all kinds of problems with this fallen world, and some people have compromised immune systems for a variety of different reasons. These are the folks that we need to be the most careful around during this pandemic. We've had a number of people in our church that have tested positive and have had virtually no symptoms or had a day of a fever or whatever. I mean, it has been less harmful to them than many times the flu is. But other people, it hits them very, very hard. My point behind all this is not to shed more light on this pandemic. We've all got COVID-19 overload right now, but it's to say that your body is magnificent. It's amazing. And if you use it right and don't abuse it, your body will serve you for many years. The best thing that you could be doing right now in the midst of this pandemic is not wearing a mask. By all means, wear a mask if you would like to do so. The best thing you could do is to be healthy. You need to stay healthy. You need to be working out. And you don't have to go to the gym and lift weights or anything like that, but get out and, and you know, do a brisk walk, right? Make sure you're eating a healthy diet. If you're smoking, stop smoking. You're killing your immune system with that. We need to be healthy because your body will fight this off. They say, well, what does that have to do with marriage and family, pastor? I don't understand. What I'm trying to say is beginning with your body, God has a design, right? So if you have a bulletin and you're going to follow along with our, uh, our outline, number one in the outline is very straightforward, but, uh, and it may seem very obvious, but I don't think we get this. Number one is there is a way things are supposed to be. There is a way things are supposed to be. God created the world. God designed the world. Therefore, there is a way that things are supposed to be. What is the first verse in the Bible? Does anybody know it? Genesis 1.1. Have we forgotten? God created the heavens and the earth. God created space, time. He created the earth. He created this planet that is inhabited by us, this beautiful blue ball that hangs in the middle of space as a perfect place for us to thrive, not just survive, and even to be able to view the rest of the universe. Um, there's, a, there's a powerful book that was written uh, regarding this uh, about our very, very special place in uh, this galaxy, in this universe, and how God designed it that way. It's called Privileged Planet. One of the authors is a uh, uh, a cosmobiologist, I think, is what, what he is. He looks at uh, how um, biology works uh, in the cosmos, and his name is Guillermo Gonzalez. But 
what we see from top to bottom is that there is a beautiful design, but we also see flaws and problems. Well, we are living in a fallen world, and that explains that, okay? So understand then that you and I were created by God, and we are designed. Also understand that the institution of marriage was established by God, not the Supreme Court, not a president, not a king, not a philosopher, marriage was established by God. Therefore, if we are going to get in on God's good plan, then we're going to seek to follow his design. We're going to seek to pursue his purpose. God created human beings in his image, right? That's number two. That's Genesis 1.27. It says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you are a, a woman or a young woman, God created you. If you are a man or a young man, God created you. You need to start with that. But he didn't just create you like the rest of the animals. He created you in a special way. He gave you the capacity to be able to apprehend him, to understand him, to receive communication from him, right? He gave you something that the animals don't possess. Now, you and I have animal bodies. That's why we can test rats and rabbits and so forth and, and find out that some of the thing, same things that happen in their bodies happen in our body and so forth. But it's more than a soul. You have a spirit, there is something that is immaterial in you that is very, very like God. Now, interestingly, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that word for spirit can also mean breath or wind. So in Genesis 2-7, it says that God formed man from the dust of the earth. That's the body. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the spirit. And man became a living being or a living soul. You have a body, you have a spirit, and those tied together form the human soul. Now, when you and I are born, we're born into a fallen world that is separated from God. Therefore, you could say that although our spirit is there, it is not operational, it is not fully uh, capable of what God intends it to. Perhaps you could say it's dumb, it's numb, or it's blind, right? And it must be reborn. That's why we need to come to Jesus. We need to receive forgiveness for our sin, our shortcomings, our failings, our rebellion, our lawlessness. And we need to receive the Holy Spirit who gives our spirit a new start, a new birth, a fresh beginning. That's when God first touches the human soul, and that's when we begin this process of progress toward uh, becoming more like the Son of God. Number three, God created both male and female. Now, you heard that in the verse in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. That's not a decision that you make. You don't come to a conclusion at some point in your life and say, I think I'm a male or I think I'm a female. You're born that way. You're hardwired. Your hardware tells you what you are. You see, we, we've come to a time when we think that our feelings inform us of what we really are. 
But the scripture says very clearly that the heart of man, the the heart of the human being, is desperately sick. It's deceived. Who can know it? If I'm just looking at my heart to determine what I am and who I am, I am going to fall short every time. See, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver, and he is capable of penetrating human societies and individual families and individual lives and deceiving them and lying lying to them so that they believe something that is not true. God established marriage and family. So um, we see this in Genesis 1.28, and then we see it at the, uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, where God took from the side of man and made a woman. Before he did that, he had the man uh, interact with a variety of other created beings in the garden, these other animals. He named them. But it says there was... There was nothing that was corresponding to him that he found. So I know we all love our animals. They're, they're wonderful. You love your dog. You love your cat. But I'm sorry, the dog is not man's best friend. It's not. The wife is. That's what God created. Okay? Your cat is not your best friend, ladies. Your husband is. Now, I'm not saying your dog's not amazing. I'm not saying your cat's not amazing, but they're on a different level of amazing. Okay? Ladies, you're amazing. You're the cream of God's creation. God could have created anything. God could have created a friend for Adam. He could have created a buddy. They could have hung out and hunted or something. They could have made the original man cave. Oh, oh, oh. But it wouldn't have been anything like what God created when he created Eve. Now, there are some folks that are, that are broken, and they cannot fully realize that. There are some folks that are created not to enter into the kind of intimacy that a man and a woman enter into in a marriage relationship. But what you and I need to understand before we delve into the shortcomings that we find in ourselves and in our culture is that there is a design. There is a plan. And when you go chasing anything else, any other dream, any other feeling, you're going to fall short. You're not going to be fulfilled. Oh, you can be happy for a short period of time doing a lot of different things. Why do people take drugs that destroy their bodies? Um, I was reading a book not too long ago, and the, uh, the author was talking about the first time he tried cocaine and how amazing it was. But in the story, you see how cocaine actually destroyed this fellow's life. There was a, there was a, a lady that I knew uh, back in the, in the 90s, and she actually had a, an incredible testimony. Um, she was the, uh, the head of the largest abortion clinic in Dallas County. And she came to a point in her life where she realized that that was wrong, and she gave her life to Jesus. And it was a huge change because she was pregnant at the time, and they all expected her to, because she was single at the time, they all expected her to go in and, and get an abortion and I, you know, I don't know all the details of her story. I know the person that led her to Christ, and I could bring that person here uh, to share her story. That woman's name is Jill Boucher, who operated the first crisis pregnancy center over at our uh, facility called The Rock. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this woman did a lot of cocaine. A lot of people who are involved in difficult jobs find that they need some way to feel better. And so they use and abuse chemicals. Sometimes they're legal, sometimes they're illegal. Long story short, this young woman abused cocaine to such a degree she was shooting it. 
It was no longer something that got her the high that she needed or wanted by ingesting it through her nose or in some other way. So she was shooting it, and she was shooting it in the veins in her hands and in her feet. She went to the hospital, and they thought they were going to have to amputate her hands and her feet at one point, right? Zoom ahead. Her daughter is in her 20s. She's hap- this woman is happily married. Uh, she's, uh, she's living a Christian life, has a Christian family, but she had done so much damage to her heart with this cocaine that she eventually died in her 40s due to heart damage. You see, you can feel good for a while. You can mask the pain for a while, but your body is designed a specific way. Your heart can't take that load, right? It's like if you have a a lamp in your house and you plug it into a standard uh, 110-volt outlet, then, you know, the bulb in that lamp will last for the amount of time that it says it'll last, whatever kind of bulb you have. If it's an LED bulb, it'll last a lot longer. It's an old incandescent bulb, then, you know, it's going to last for a few months if you just left it on continuously. But what happens if you plug that lamp into a 220-volt outlet? Men? Yeah, it ain't going to last because it's not designed to handle that load, man. I'll take a vehicle as an example. I was talking to Dean out there earlier about his truck, and uh, you know it's got a heavy-duty suspension is what he was telling me, right? And he took it out and took it hunting this weekend. So what happens if you're in a vehicle that doesn't have a heavy-duty suspension, but you take it over all of that rough terrain? Man, you just break it all up. You just bust it into pieces. I told uh, our group on Wednesday a story about how I took my Camaro, basically four-wheeling, when I was (laughs) in my early 20s, except, as you would well know, a Camaro is not a four-wheel drive vehicle. And uh, I got down around the backside of Lake Pleasant in uh, the outskirts of Phoenix, Arizona, and I went down this grade because the road just kept getting narrower and narrower, and I was looking for some friends of mine that had gone out water skiing, and the road kept getting narrower and narrower and bumpier and bumpier. And finally, I went down this grade, down in kind of this little area. It looked like I'd turn around and come back out. And guess what? I got stuck. Because I didn't have a four-wheel drive vehicle. Now, fortunately, I didn't break up the suspension on it, but it wasn't designed for that kind of terrain, so I couldn't get out of there. I had to go and find a park ranger who, in fact, did have a vehicle that was designed to pull somebody like me out of that. He had a Jeep. He locked all the wheels. It had a winch on the front. He pulled it down. We wrapped it around. This was in the old days when we had metal bumpers. We wrapped it around, and I started up the car, you know, because I didn't want to just have him just drag me up without help. And, you know, and I pressed on the accelerator, and then he pulled the, the, the winch, and the winch pulled me right out of there because that's what that winch is designed to do is to help provide some power. You're designed, my friend. You can't just do whatever you want to do. So there's a couple of people in here, and I've told this story before, and they're all going to say, Pastor Darrell, you need to stop telling this story. But there's a friend of ours, was a member of my youth group back in Craig and Rachel's era. So this was back in the Jurassic period when dinosaurs wandered the earth. And uh, this young lady is a couple of years older than Craig and Rachel, and she had a, a vehicle. Uh, I can't remember what it was. It might have been a Camaro. And uh, she pulled up to the gas pump, and she just pulled the, the pump out, and it was the pump that was green. And she filled her tank up. Yeah, I see some people nodding in here because you know that she put diesel fuel in her car. I bet you can guess that her car did not run for long. 
And she had to take it to a mechanic shop and they had to clean. See, diesel fuel is actually oil. You can't burn it in a, in a standard uh, engine. It has to burn in a diesel engine because the way the diesel engine ignites that is with pressure, right? And the way your combustion engine lights a cylinder is with a spark plug with fire, right? And burns that fuel, this, this diesel fuel. Have you ever smelled diesel fuel burning? It's not a pleasant smell. It's oil, right? So it's smoky. It's, that's not what the vehicle was designed for. You're designed, and your feelings don't tell you what your design is. But God will. Amen? So we need to look at God, and we need to look at God's Word, and no matter what my feelings are, what my background is, I just need to know I'm in a fallen world and if I'm going to be fulfilled, I need to follow God's design because you can chase those dreams and chase those feelings and they will lead you into dead ends where you will wish you made better decisions earlier on in your life. So number four is God established marriage. I made that uh, statement clearly. Number five, we live in a fallen world where people are in rebellion against God and his design. Romans 3.23. Who knows Romans 3.23? Four, finish it. Now, I love Romans 3.23 because it says, for all have sinned. And then it defines the word and fallen short of the glory of God. God has a glorious standard. This isn't some artificial law that he just says, do it because I said so. Parents, you have likely been put in a position before where you didn't want to explain all this stuff to your kid. You just said, I'm the mom and you're going to do what I told you. But you likely had a purpose behind whatever the rule was that was broken here. God has a purpose behind all of the rules that he sets up. And that purpose is seen in his design. So he revealed the law to Moses in fact, Genesis, where I've been quoting all this time, is in the Pentateuch. It's in the first five books of the Bible, right? The five books of the law. And so what we see is that although God has a standard that he's clearly established, we are continuously failing. That's what it means. That word in Greek that is translated sin is the word hamartia, and it means to fall short. So you may pursue certain ideas. You may pursue feelings that you have, thoughts that you have. You may pursue plans that other people have introduced you to. But you need to understand, if this is not in accordance with God's design, then you are failing to fulfill his purpose for your life. And ultimately, you are going to reap the, the negative rewards of that, right? The scripture says that God cannot be mocked. It says that if you sow to your flesh, what does sow mean? I don't mean sow like this, but sow like a farmer. What does that mean? It means plant. I'm poking a hole in the ground and I'm dropping a seed, right? If you sow to your flesh, if you plant in your natural self apart from God, it says you will reap destruction, corruption. But if you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. So God comes to take us out of this fallen world and restore us. He redeems us 
from this slavery to sin and rebellion, and he restores us, and he begins to put us on that path that he intends for us to walk. So there are plenty of people who have plenty of testimonies regarding this. Um, but you and I need to understand that the reason we see everything that we see in this world is because we sin. We're in a fallen world, and we sin and fall short of God's glory. Number six, Jesus affirmed God's created order for gender, marriage, and family. Now, I want to get to this. There are people who discuss these issues, gender, marriage, and family, who would say, for instance, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Now, I, I bring that up because that was in the, in the scene that we have, but I want you to see that Jesus said something about gender, marriage, and family, and therefore, although he didn't mention homosexuality directly, what he did is affirmed God's plan, God's created order, and God's law. Let's listen to what Jesus had to say, because I think that that should make up our minds. This is Matthew 19. I'll start with verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, you need to understand, as I indicated to you last week and the week before, the Pharisees were the liberals of their day, but they were legalists also. Interestingly, that didn't necessarily apply to marriage because many of the Pharisees were very loose when it concerned marriage. A man could simply write out a certificate of divorce, hand it to his wife, and she had to leave and go fend for herself. And there were Pharisees that were all about that. They said, well, if she doesn't please me, then she's gone. Jesus came up against that. He said, no, in God's plan, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Verse 4, he answered, that is, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, now he's quoting, Jesus is quoting, he's quoting a text that I just quoted. A man shall leave his, actually I didn't quote it, I was going to quote it. This is Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Right there, Jesus clearly affirmed everything that I've already told you, everything that Genesis established, that God created human beings in his image, that he created you either female or male, that his plan is for the, the man and the woman to leave their parents and be joined together in a lifelong relationship. Now, I'm looking across a room, and if this is like any other room that I've uh, been a part of, and I know some of your lives, then we have all been on the dark side of some of these things. I come from a, a, a home where there was divorce. Um, my mom has currently been married to her husband now for, gosh, 35 years, I think, 36 years. But she went through some difficult times early on when I was a child, and she had gone through several marriages. And so I'm a child of a, of a family that went through divorce. And there are all kinds of reper repercussions, ramifications, consequences of that. But we make decisions and we go through these things. Uh, many of you in this room have faced those same sorts of issues. I'm not here to try to make you feel like you are less 
if you've been through one of those situations. I'm not here to try to make you feel like you're a great sinner if you are same-sex attracted, for example. I am here to help all of us to understand that regardless of what we've been through, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what others have done to us, there is a purpose. There is a plan. God is the creator. He's the designer. We need to get in on his design. So if, like me, you've been through difficulty, and I'm sure, like me, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then we don't dwell on the past. We don't see ourselves as our sin. We see ourselves as children whom God loves and seeks to redeem out of sin. Amen? See, I think that this is the danger. In an effort to take certain addictions seriously, people will identify themselves with that addiction. This is a, this is a, uh, a, um, a plan or a practice, I guess I should say, in Alcoholics Anonymous. A group of people will sit around in a circle, and each person will give their testimonial, their story. And they'll begin by saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, they'll only use their first name, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, I understand what's behind that, and I'm not trying to rail against that. But for me, once I've come to Christ and received not only his forgiveness and his grace, but an internal transformation, a transformation of the heart, I should no longer be seeing myself in present tense as an alcoholic. I should be seeing myself the way God sees me as a redeemed child of his. Amen? Now, I'm going to continue to recognize, if I'm an alcoholic in the past, that, that I could relapse. I'm not going to presume that I couldn't go back and make those mistakes again. But I think when you continue to see yourself as an addict or an alcoholic or whatever label you want to put there, that is really largely the problem. I have identified with my sickness. But when I come to Jesus, I'm healed. I don't want to put you in the past. I don't want you to continue to drag all of this terrible stuff that you've been through along with you. I don't want you to allow the enemy to continue to point the finger at you. What you need to understand is if we're guilty, we need to come to Christ, admit our guilt, and get free. Amen? But there's no reason to continue to walk around under that weight of guilt or with a sense of shame because of what's happened to us or what we've done or what others have done in the past, if we've come to Christ and we've come out of that. But see, you actually have to come out of it. You have to repent. That was Jesus' first message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what repent means? It means you're walking this way and you make a 180 degree turn and start walking this way. Repent means that you have a change of mind. Repent means that you have a change of heart. What we see too often is people, well, uh, one, of my, one of my childhood heroes, uh, not a believer, so I can't say that he's my hero anymore, but one of my childhood heroes passed away a couple of weeks ago, Eddie Van Halen. And uh, they came out with an album, their first album, I think it was the first one with Sammy Hagar, and it had this song on it. And I used to quote this all the time to youth groups, and they used to all identify and whatever. And now you guys are going to look at me like I'm really old, all right? But in the song, Sammy Hagar sings, I want the best of both worlds. 
and you can't have that. What he meant was, I want everything down here on earth. I want all of the drugs, sex, and rock and roll I can get, and I want heaven too. You can't have it. The flesh comes up against the spirit, and the spirit comes up against the flesh. That's what it says in Galatians, so that you can't do what you want to do. You can have the best of one or the best of the other. That's it. You're down here to make up your mind. So although that's a very entertaining song, you can't have what it promises, and neither can I, right? Number seven, God joins one man and one woman together in marriage for life. That's what it clearly says here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Every wedding that I officiate, I require the couple to go through premarital counseling. And pretty typically, they go to another couple in this church that's more experienced, and they go through a book that we've gone through for years and years. I will check, if, if, I'm, if I'm officiating their wedding, I will check in with them at the beginning, the middle, and the end. But I'm not married. Now, I could go through that book just perfectly well. But a couple needs that experience from this other couple to go along with the principles that are in the book. Well, why do I do that? Well, when I was in seminary, uh, I took a class on counseling that focused on premarital counseling. So I could have become a professional premarital counselor. And the fellow that taught that class said, you as a pastor should not perform any wedding if the couple doesn't go through premarital counseling. And so as a result, that's what we do. And it makes clear to this couple what I'm making clear to you here. I make it clear to them. I've said every couple in, in here that has ever sat in front of me that wanted me to officiate their wedding has heard me say something along these lines. You can't go into this planning to have a back door. Right. Now again, I know we've been through divorce. These are problems. I get it. I get it. I get it. You need to understand what God's standard is. We need to all stop seeing ourselves in the past and we need to start pursuing God's purpose for us from the now and into the future. It is God's plan for one man and one woman to remain together for life. That's his plan. And the reason that we have so much family dysfunction in the world that we're living in is because we don't follow that plan. We follow our own plan. Yeah, but I just love him and he doesn't want to get married right now. Then ditch him. Make him figure it out. Give me a break. Guys, you need to stop getting away with that, those shenanigans. She needs to just say, uh-uh. You ain't getting none until I got a ring right there. But instead, we just give in. We're just, oh, well, you know, that's not how I feel. By the way, this, this gets to the root of what we're dealing with right now with uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court and the, the current justice that is, uh, that is uh, seeking to be confirmed. Uh, uh, she is an originalist, which means she interprets the Constitution as the Constitution is written in accordance with what we understand the framers to have intended. That's different 
than your typical left-leaning justice will interpret the Constitution. For instance, Justice Sotomayor, when she was being confirmed, said, I will look into my heart when I make these decisions. That's the last thing I want you to do. I want you to look at the law. I want you to defend the Constitution. I want you to do what that says. I'm not interested in what your heart says. That's good for you and the people around you, but you don't need to be making decisions about this country if you're going to look into your heart. But that's what we do. You need to stop trusting your heart until your heart belongs to Jesus. Amen? And even then, you look to Jesus and you trust Jesus and you realize that, you know what? Even then, I can be deceived. I have all sorts of feelings and I can be wrong. And I realize I can be wrong. That's why you see me up here constantly going to the Scripture and pointing you to the Scripture again and again and again because I want you to understand, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. I will pass away. My feelings, my, my personality, uh, whatever you know, of me that was left here on earth that has impressed you in some way, positively or negatively, is going to pass away. But the word of God that I have spoken to you will remain forever, and you are responsible for every word you have ever heard me say, if it's the word of God. So, um, God's plan is for children to be raised by a mother and a father. Now, this is where we have incredible difficulty. We, I, I, we have fathers and mothers in here who are raising their kids essentially by themselves, and I am not disparaging that in the least. My mom raised my sister and I by herself the majority of the time. I'm just trying to help you understand that that's not God's purpose. God will work with you and through you and help you to have the strength to provide and to love on your kids. But those of you that are trying to raise your kids by yourself, you know it would be better if you had someone else a wife or a husband alongside you that were dedicated to do that. This is God's plan. Again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm trying to help us to understand there is a standard. There is a plan. And whatever mistakes I may have made in the past, I need to repent of those mistakes and start walking forward and make the right decisions now. Yeah. Amen? Now, that may mean that you end up raising those kids by yourself because God doesn't introduce you to someone else that he wants you to get involved with, right? And God's deadly serious about marriage. The substance behind what Jesus is saying here is unless it's because of adultery, you don't, even, you don't get remarried. You don't get divorced at the drop of a hat and you don't get remarried. That's what he's saying here. We don't like any of that. But that's what Jesus said because he said that this covenant is permanent. Now, when one of the partners abuses you, one of the partners goes out and commits adultery, then they have violated that covenant. If one of the partners dies, then that's when Jesus said, you're free to remarry. We need to stop thinking that we need a man or we need a woman to complete us. I'm old now. And I've met a lot of wonderful ladies in my time, but I've never met one that I would be willing to commit my life to, and I am not willing to compromise. So I've not gotten married. And it's not because I don't like women. I don't appreciate women. I do. In fact, I have to be careful when I'm around ladies because I will just keep talking. You say, well, you talk a lot here. Look at how long the sermon's gone. <laughs> it's true. 
If I had a counselor, I wouldn't want a dude. I'm sorry. Guys, bless you. No. I don't want to open my heart to a dude. I just don't. All right? Women are naturally more receptive. They are naturally better listeners. They are naturally more compassionate and concerned and relationship-oriented. That's the norm. God did a great job, but we've got to get in on his plan, and it's not his design and his plan for everybody to get married. Most people probably, but not everybody. But if it is the case, then he wants a woman to marry a man and a man to marry a woman. That's what the supreme being says, regardless of what the supreme court has said. Now, that's the truth. Number 10, God offers a fresh start to all who will change their thinking and come to him. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, even to those who called on his name. In John 3.3 3 and 5, Jesus said, You must be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, unless you're born naturally and supernaturally, you're never going to enter heaven. You have to be reborn. That has to happen, and that gives you a complete fresh start. And again, as I quoted earlier, Jesus said, Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. That means turn away from your sin. In Acts 2.38, the conclusion of the first gospel sermon, the apostle Peter, when they, were, when they were torn up inside over the message that he had preached to them and said, men and sirs, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You need a fresh start. All of us need a fresh start. Even if you're still married to the same person and you've been married forever and a day, both of you need a fresh start. None of us are perfect. But we need to affirm God's standard for marriage and for family. And finally, um, if you identify with and cling to sin, then you can't be saved. Now, I'm not going to quote it. It's an extended passage, but you can write down 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And it's going to make very, very clear to you that there are a whole lot of sins that we find acceptable that God does not find acceptable to the degree that he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that if you hold on to these things, if you cling to these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not going to heaven. You can't hang on to your sin. You can't have the best of both worlds. You have to confess that that is wrong and that's not what you want anymore and let God take you out of it. And verse 12 Whoever sins is a slave to sin, but whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that's the substance behind what Jesus says in John 8, 34 through 36. If I sin, it's not just a matter of failing and falling short. I become addicted to it, whatever it is. That's why I want to identify with it. I want to see it as me because it is something that is constantly deceiving me into believing that I'm going to somehow receive a reward from it. But once you come to Jesus and he sets you free, that's when you're really free. See, we think we're free if we can make a decision. If I can decide what gender I am, if I can decide whether to marry uh, a man or a woman or, you know, kind of just do things my own way, I think that that means that I'm free. But the reality is you're free when you act in accordance with God's design for you. The young lady that I told you about that put diesel fuel in her car, she was free to do that. <laughs> Nobody stopped her. She filled her right up. In fact, if I remember correctly, 
She did it because at that time it was cheaper. Now, you know, half the time or more, diesel is more expensive. But I think it was cheaper, and that's why she did it. Man, you're free to put diesel in your car. You're free to buy a Tesla and fill up the trunk with gas or the frunk with gas because they have a thing in the front, right? But your Tesla's not going to run on gas. There's a design. When you operate in accordance with that design and within those parameters and those boundaries, then you are free. Amen? Amen? So I hope that this has helped you to understand that God's got a purpose. God's got a point. God's got a design. And that extends to you individually beyond these very important subjects of marriage and family. That extends to you in your personal life. What, whatever your future may be as far as your career, your education, okay? Um, the other relationships that you will have. Now, I'm just going to say this in passing. It, 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 I, I don't believe it's God's purpose for everyone to get married. I'm not sure that I completely buy into the sexual orientation argument, but I have had enough conversations with people who identify with homosexuality to know that they're not faking it, and they didn't just make up their mind one day and say, oh, I'm gay. This is something that they've dealt with their entire lives. I understand that, okay? To these folks, what I would say is, and listen carefully to what I say, don't stop when you hear something. God is not opposed to same-sex love. As long as you understand, sex is not love. Did you hear what I said? In fact, oftentimes, whether it is same-sex or opposite sex, sex is what ruins the relationship. The problem with homosexuality is not a man loving a man or a woman loving a woman. The problem is stepping outside of God's design for sexual intimacy. I have never been opposed to domestic partnerships or even civil unions because this doesn't have anything to do with sex. It has to do with two people trying to build a life, call a domestic partnership something like uh, permanent roommates, I don't know, with legal rights. If that's what people want to do to get by, they, this happens with families all the time. People can be friends. People can be close friends. The problem with homosexuality is the sex part. That's not God's design. Whatever your feelings say, God has a design for you. So this is where kids can be confused by this because they don't understand the sexual side of things, and they're just like, well, I don't get it. I like my friends. Sure you do. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the same thing as what happens when you get older. There's things that happen in your mind and in your body that are just very, very different. And yet we have kids that are being introduced to these subjects. I'm going to say this. Precocious experience with adult intimacy is a sure predictor of dysfunction and promiscuity in the future. Talk to your kids. Tell them the truth. But don't tell them more than they're ready for. Now, I haven't gotten into any details. I've said some things that maybe, Aiden, you'll ask your parents questions, all right? But I haven't said anything to you that's going to tell you anything about anything. But I will tell you this, when I was a year younger than Aiden, 
I was like, man, I want to know about this stuff. And I started asking my mom questions. Now, again, I said my mom raised me. No dad in the house at that point in time. And I can remember my mom was getting ready for work. She's putting her makeup on. And I'm sitting on the counter, and she's telling me these things, and my mouth is like, huh? <laughs> that what? Oh, okay. You know what's unfortunate? My mom was just perfectly willing to talk to me about that. Just, you know, bleh, just tell me how it is. But I knew kids who were older than me that were interested in those things, and the only way they found out was from their friends. Your kids shouldn't be finding these things out from their friends. And I'm going to take it a step further. Your kids shouldn't be finding this out from their health ed class in sixth grade. I don't want sex education taught in the school because I don't want them telling these kids the things that the sex education classes are going to tell these kids today. You're a parent. You've been given that child, or you will be. You're responsible for them. You've got to share with them. You've got to ask them questions. You've got to see when they're ready. Some kids are nine and they want to know it all. Some kids aren't, you know, until they're 12 or 13 and then they know it all. Right? Whatever it is, you be the teacher and you teach them according to the scripture. No matter what the health ed class says. No matter what all these other people are saying. No matter all the noise that the culture is, is making. Now I'm going to just tell you right now you're going to see more and more and more effort made to disrupt this natural idea that God has laid out for marriage and family. And you and I need to not give up and not give in. We need to continue to love and tell the truth and not hate anybody and not reject anybody and not make ourselves above anybody else because they have a certain weakness and we don't have that weakness. You don't know what people are going through. I don't know what people are going through, okay? But I'm going to continue to tell the truth, and I'm going to continue to lay that standard out there for you and I. And we're going to see that we're all going to benefit as the result of following Jesus and pursuing his perfect plan for our lives.